God is good. Amen. Amen. Huh? I have that, that saying, that slogan, you say, God is good. Everybody else says, all the time. And all the time, God is good. Amen. You know, that song, you know, King of my heart, you're never going to let me down. You know, the Bible says that it is impossible for God to fail. It is impossible for God to fail. Joshua put it this way. He said when we entered into the promised land, not one thing failed of anything that He had promised us, but every word came to pass. Everything that God's ever spoken to you, everything that He's promised to you, everything that you're believing for, according to His will, it will not fail, but it will inevitably come to pass. Um, that has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm preaching this morning, but that was an awesome, awesome time of just reflecting on His glory and praising Him in worship. We're going to be in John chapter 3. We're actually going to be focusing on a verse that everybody here can probably quote. Um, I'm actually going to do something that I've never done before, at least never done to this extent. I'm actually going to begin a sermon series, so everybody watch out. Um, we're going to be doing a series on John 3.16. Uh, I came in and my first Sunday ministering here was the triumphal entry and then Resurrection Sunday. And you know, those are the only two holidays where I preach according to the holiday. Only two holidays I preach on the coming in of Jesus and the celebration and the Passion Week and then the Resurrection. I preach according to those holidays. Every other holiday, I just preach whatever I feel like the Spirit's leading. But those holidays are special and set and I preach according to that. So I didn't necessarily get to start on a foundation that I wanted to start on. And I think that... John 3.16 is a good place for us to begin a foundation. This is the, uh, the apex, the crescendo, the climax, the summit, the mantra, if you will, the manifesto of Christianity. This is the verse that sums up the gospel. <coughs> but have you ever really thought about this verse? And have you ever really thought if we actually understand John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life? Have you ever... Do we actually understand that verse? And the reason that I ask that is because I have a friend of mine, a former friend of mine, not because of conflict, but just because of distance and separation, who preached a sermon series on John 3.16 and said that John 3.16 justified worshiping on Saturday and that Sunday worship was taking the mark of the beast using John 3.16 alone. And I don't know <laughs> what translation you have, um, every translation that I've checked, I, I, can't, I can't get there. Um, we ended up debating back and forth. But the point that I'm making is that maybe we don't fully understand John 3.16 in its entirety. Maybe we don't fully appreciate what John 3.16 actually is. Um, so we're going to start in verse 1, but before we do, I'd like to begin in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that you would fill me, that you would speak through me, Lord, I ask that You just make me and render me a vessel for Your Word and for Your Spirit. Lord, I pray that every single heart is softened. I pray that every single ear is opened. And I pray that every single mind is attentive to what You and Your Spirit are trying to say this morning. I pray that we be receptive to the Word of God. I pray that we make ourselves good ground so that the seed will bring forth some 30, some 60, and some even 100-fold. Lord Jesus, I'm looking for people to take hold of Your Word and it to bring forth fruit in their life. And Lord Jesus, we're laying a foundation. Paul said the other foundation can no man lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we're looking for that foundation. 
and then we can build upon that. And Lord, I think that John 3 is the perfect place to lay that foundation because it's entirely about You and Your will and Your Word and Your ways. So Lord, bless this Word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, to understand John 3.16, we need to understand first the context of the conversation because John 3.16 is not just a random statement grabbed out of air and thrown in. It's actually the answer to a question that's asked. So we're going to start with chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless one is born again, he cannot see. That's an important point. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Notice that one, without being born again, one cannot see the kingdom, and one cannot enter the kingdom. Do not marvel that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We're going to pause right there and reflect on what just happened. There's a conversation going on. First off, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He wants to know more, but he's not all in yet. He's coming by night because he doesn't necessarily want to surrender his position in the synagogue, and Jesus had already made it pretty distinct that you're either with him or against him. You're either of him or not of him. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the time, they'd already made it pretty clear that if you're following Jesus, you're not part of the synagogue. So Nicodemus was curious and sincere, but he wasn't all in yet. He wasn't ready to give it all up. So he came to Jesus by night and admitted, we know that you're come from God. So they knew something about him. They knew that there was evidence of who he was in God. But he wasn't really ready to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah or Jesus was God incarnate. And so he says, Jesus says, one cannot, unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. And then again later on, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus asks a very natural question. Can, how can one be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb again? And Jesus says, water and spirit making the separation. That which is flesh is flesh. So he's saying, no, the birth that you're talking about is that which is of the earth, earthly. The birth that you're talking about is that which is of water. You're talking about a flesh birth. And that has to happen, obviously. But we're talking about the birth of the spirit. We're talking about being born of the spirit. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What he's saying here is you see the evidence of the wind, you can hear the sound, you can see the damage that it does. Everybody here knows that a little bit too well about the damage that wind can do. Not trying to bring back any old memories, but you've experienced that. You've experienced the evidence of what wind can do. You can see the evidence of wind, but still we have trouble truly pegging down what the origin of wind is. And so what Jesus is saying is you're not going to fully be able to comprehend this origin. You're not going to fully be able, but you can see its evidence. 
And so what he's telling Nicodemus is you're going to be able to see and hear and know that somebody's born of the Spirit even though you don't fully understand it and all of its intricacies. Looking at verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not truly understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except one who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And here's where we're going to get into the actual nitty-gritty of verse 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believe in him may have eternal life. Now we're understanding that this conversation is still answering the question of how one can be born of the Spirit. So that's truly the context of how one is born of the Spirit. Now Jesus references a passage of Scripture, and while I'm talking, you can go ahead and flip over in your Bibles to Numbers 21, verse 4. Jesus is referencing a scripture so that he can further explain what he is talking about in being born of the Spirit. And I'm trying my best. I want, I'm not trying to be super eloquent. I'm just being very, very base because I really want us to grasp this. Later on, we can get into eloquence. We can get into theology and philosophy, religious philosophy. We can get into all of these things. But truly for us to move forward, we need to lay a solid foundation and know that we are on the same page when we're talking about what it is to be born again, what it is to be saved, what it is to be born of the Spirit. We have to have the same foundation. You know, Jesus says it this way in one of his parables. He says, if a man builds a house upon the sand, when the storm comes, it's going to fall apart. And great is the fall of it. But if a man builds his house on a rock, on a solid foundation, then when the storm comes, it won't be moved. Right now, we're laying a foundation. So if we're going to build this foundation, if we come in and we start preaching theology and dispensational theology, and we start preaching theology major and all of these different aspects or what the different types of sanctification are, or we even get into um, antinomianism versus legalism versus Calvinism versus Arminianism and breaking down all of these different doctrines of grace and of faith and all of these aspects, but we don't have a solid foundation, then you may know how to answer questions right, but you're not going to know how to lead somebody to God. You're not going to know what it is that has you wrapped up in God, what it is that assures your salvation and that's what we're getting at this morning we want to lay the foundation and this series is going to be all about laying that foundation so that then when we get into the other things we have something solid we have the rock which is Jesus Christ which we're building our foundation on again no other foundation can any man lay than that which is already laid which is Jesus Christ so numbers 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 21 I probably should have turned there when I told you guys to Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out against, by the way, to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. You think? 
For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. There's a lot to this. There's a lot of symbolism. Let's stay base here. So the people coming out, they sinned. And we can go into every type of sin that they committed, but at the very least, they blasphemed against God. They insulted His miraculous works. They murmured. They complained. They berated, gossiped, and tore down a man of God or a prophet of God. Overall, they sinned. And that's not counting all the things that they did sinfully that leading up to this, the golden calf and the... <laughs> Paul says it, they ate and drank and rose up to play. And I don't need to add anything else into that. But they sinned. And when judgment came they realized that they had sinned. It's so funny how something bad has to happen before we're like, oh, we're sinful. That's unfortunate that it takes judgment to make us acknowledge our sin. They did several things. We loathe this worthless food. First off, if you wake up every morning and you can go out and the dew of the grass literally turns into a honey wafer, are you really going to be complaining that much? I mean, should you really be complaining that much? You, all you have to do is go out in your front yard and pick up some graham crackers. I mean, that's to me, if all I had to do each day, I didn't have to go to the grocery store. I didn't have to go and shoot a turkey. I didn't have to go and, you know, deer hunting. I didn't, I mean, I didn't have to do those things out of necessity. All I had to do was walk out in my front yard and pick up food. I mean... And then God even tells them in another instance that if you didn't like that, all you had to do was ask. But because they went and complained, then he gave them so much quail that it was literally what the Bible says, it was coming out their nose because they had so much. All they had to do was ask, but they decided to go the gossip route. See, James says this, he says, you have not because you ask not. And you ask and you have not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust, but... He says, you have not because you ask not. So often in our lives, when our lives are going bad and our finances aren't adding up or any other thing, I don't have to go through this spectrum like I've done, I did last week, but something in our life isn't adding up. Instead of just coming to God and asking Him, what's the first thing we do? We walk over here and we say, hey, uh, hey uh, Barrett, can you believe that so-and-so is talking about me behind my back at work? Or maybe we go over here and say, hey, uh, Faith, do you really believe what they took from me? You know, I gave that pizza delivery guy $20 for a $5 pizza, and he kept my $15 change. Do you, can you believe that? I mean, or my electric bill was $200 instead of 100 I mean, the first thing that we do is we murmur, we gossip, we complain, we spread it around a little bit, make a little bit of manure, stink a whole lot more over a larger area. <laughs> You're welcome for that pretty picture. <laughs> but seriously, we don't just go to God and ask. We don't just go to God and say, God, I need you to intervene in this situation. No. We go, I cannot believe that I'm dealing with this. I cannot believe that this is happening in my life. How could God let this happen to me? How could God do this to me? And we talk to somebody else about God instead of talking to God 
and asking Him. And that's an unfortunate, unfortunate truth. But that's not the point that I want to make. The point that I want to make is they sinned and judgment came. And what did the judgment look like? The judgment looked like what the King James calls fiery serpents. I believe that it's actually called fiery serpents here. They, they actually did a study and they went to Israel and in that region and they found a viper and it's, I forget the exact name of it, but it's a spring viper. And what it does is it coils up and it shoots itself into the air. And it can hit a man on a horse in the face from the ground. So it can literally shoot itself 10 feet in the air and hit a man who's riding a horse in the face. This is what was coming out of the ground biting these people. And they're super poisonous and you'd be dead in, in minutes of this. If it hit a major bloodstream, major artery, it would kill you within minutes. So these serpents started coming out of the ground and spring loads shooting at people, hitting them in the face and in the arms, and people started to die. And it was at this point when death started occurring and they started suffering and people started getting sick and they was watching their brothers and their sisters and their mothers and their sons and their daughters dying that they went to Moses and they said, we've sinned. We have sinned. Pray to God. See, they're still not in the place where they're like, going to God themselves. Now they're, now they're going to the pastor. Now they're going to their shepherd and saying, please pray to God. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but you have just as much ability to go before the throne of grace as I do. You don't have to come to me. You can, and I would love to pray with you and pray for you, but you don't have to come to the pastor or come to somebody in the church or come to a church leader specifically and say, pray to God for me that He delivers me from this, that He takes this from me, that He helps me with this. It's good to have multiple people praying, but you, in of yourself, in of your own volition, in of your own ability, in of your own standing in Christ, have the same ability to go before God and pray to God that He deliver you. You have that ability. You have that capability. But they go to Moses and they say, pray to God that He take this from us. And so Moses goes to God and God tells him something very interesting. He said, make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, and lift it up in the air, and everyone that looks at that serpent will be healed. If you don't see the picture of Jesus right there, the very thing that was killing them, now they had to stare at, and that's how they got their salvation, their deliverance, their healing. Let me put it this way. Let me ask a great, grand, theological, biblical, scholarly question. What tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? What spoke to Eve? It was a serpent, wasn't it? What represents, this one's a little bit deeper, but what represents the curse? What did Jesus say, or what did God say to Adam and Eve? He said, the seed of the woman will bruise its head. It shall bruise his heel. Going on further, Jesus said, you shall tread on serpents. The point that I'm making is that the serpent represents not only what's killing them here in Numbers, but the serpent represents the curse of the law. The serpent represents the sin. Back to original sin, back to the sin and the curse of the sin that we're suffering from every single day in this life. The serpent is the image of that. So what Jesus did when He references in John 3, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the de desert, so must the Son of Man lift it, be lifted up. What He's actually saying is He says that 
Moses lifted up a serpent in the desert, which is the very image of the thing that was killing the people. So the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And when He's lifted up, He is going to become the very thing that is killing every single one of you. See, Jesus, Galatians 3.13, it says, You are freed from the curse. Why? Because He became a curse. As it is written, Cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. So Jesus Christ, if you want another Bible reference, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So Jesus Christ, the spotless one, we talked about it last week, He had no sin, so therefore it was impossible that the grave should hold on Him. It was impossible that death should maintain its grip on Him because He never sinned. He was completely and blameless, righteous, spotless before the Father. He had no sin. But He became sin that we might in Him become the righteousness of God. So let's look at this for a moment. Jesus became sin and He became the curse. He became the serpent. He became the image of the thing that is killing every single one of us. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of righteousness is life, Christ Jesus. Jesus became sin. He became the curse. And then He was lifted up on a tree so that every single one of us may fulfill Isaiah 45, 22. And it says, Look on the Lord and you shall be saved. Look on God and you shall be saved. Paul prays an interesting prayer in Ephesians 1. He says, I pray to God for you all that He give unto you the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and revelation our spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding, some translations say that the eyes of your heart be enlightened, that you might see what is the hope of His calling and what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. That our eyes, both physical eyes, eyes of our heart, eyes of our spirit, our eyes be open so that we can clearly see Jesus. Because what does He say to Nicodemus? He says, unless you be born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saw that he was a teacher. At that point in time, he did not see that he was the Messiah, that he was God himself. Colossians says that in him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Nicodemus did not see that Jesus Christ was the Son of God sent to pay the ransom for all sinners. But he will. He will. Because he gets born again. His eyes become open. How do they become open? Because God opens the eyes of his understanding and he is able to clearly see that Jesus Christ is our Savior, is the bronze serpent lifted up so that everyone that has their eyes open can look on him and see the kingdom of God. And where is the kingdom of God? It's in the man, Christ Jesus. And flip back to John chapter 3. If you want to flip back, you can. We're going to finish this context because I want us to understand thoroughly before we delve into the breakdown of John 3.16 as a verse, I want us to understand thoroughly the context in which this verse appears. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is a verse that we have to get our minds around. Let's read it again. We may read it a third time. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You've got to understand the purpose here. God didn't send His Son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In the desert, the bronze serpents, God didn't have Moses build the bronze serpent so that everybody that looked at the bronze serpent would be condemned. He sent the bronze serpent as an escape for the curse that they were already under. Does that make sense? He sent the bronze serpent as an escape. And I always use this picture. It's a very, very old, very classic picture. Your house is burning down. Burning down to the ground. You run to the back door. A beam falls over it. There's fire blocking the way. You can't get out. You run to the front door. Same situation. The wall falls in. You can't get out. Your roof is collapsed and you run upstairs. There's no way out. You have no escape. And then all of a sudden a patch of roof busts open and a man descending on a ladder from a helicopter reaches his arm out to pull you out to save you. Did that man condemn you? Was that what that man was there for? No, that man came to give you a way out of the burning building. He gave you a way to save your life. It wasn't the man's fault that your house was burning down. Maybe you left the stove on. The origin of the fire doesn't matter. What matters is that the man came specifically to give you a way out of the burning building. Now here's where the condemnation comes. Verse 18, Whosoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you choose to not grab that man on the ladder's hand and let him pull you out of that burning building, you're condemned and you're going to burn to death. But it's not his fault. It's not the man that's piloting the helicopter's fault. It's yours because you didn't accept the salvation that was presented to you. It's yours because you didn't take the way out that was given. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whosoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So here's the picture. Maybe the person in the house actually was an arsonist. Maybe the person that was in the house wasn't in their own house. Maybe the person that was in the house set the fire to somebody else's house and it spread quicker than what they realized it was going to and they got trapped in their own fire trying to burn somebody else's house down. So they're a criminal and potentially working their way up to be a murderer, destroying somebody else's stuff, somebody else's belongings, someone else's house, and the way out is still presented. And maybe they don't want to take that hand because they realize that if they take that hand in the natural sense that they're facing prison time, that they're facing judgment, that their deeds are going to be exposed. Here's the great thing. The person that's on the ladder, the person that pulls you out, not only are they pulling you out of the burning building, but in Christianity sense, they're also 
your advocate. They're also going to get you off on, char on those charges. Is this, is this picture making sense? You are going to pay for the sins that you have committed. Your house is burning. You are going to face judgment and death and eternal punishment. However, God sent His Son into the world to save you. And now, if you take that route of salvation, now you have an advocate with the Father. Now not only are you saved from the fire, but now, as go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21, but now you are as righteous as He is righteous. He became your sin. He took the blame. He's going to take your prison sins. He's going to take your punishment. He took it, dealt with it, completed it three days, three nights, and then ascended into glory. Does the context of what John 3.16 and where it's placed, starting is it starting to make sense? Is it starting to make sense that John 3.16 is the integral part of Christianity because of where it's placed? This isn't, and we'll break it down a little bit more, it isn't just a verse that people should put on under their eyes when they're going to play a football game or basketball players should ride on their shoes. This isn't just Tim Tebow's favorite verse. This is the verse that we can build our entire faith off of. That's why it's the manifesto, the crescendo of Christianity, because in this verse, and we'll show that over the course of the next few weeks, in this verse, we can lay a foundation of the gospel that we can build everything else off of. Because this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And there's a thing that Jews do and we don't really recognize it in our language, in our culture. If we want to make a point or drive a point home, we'll put an exclamation point at the end of a sentence. If we're texting, we may put two or three exclamation points at the end of a sentence and then put a little emoji that has like a crying laughing face or something. That's how we in our culture drive a point home. The Jews did it something a little bit differently. They had their punctuation and all of that, but the way that Jews drove a point home, and you'll see this all throughout Scripture, is they said something and then they said it again. So Jesus, verse 15, that whosoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And then go down to verse 16. What's the end of That whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He's driving a point home. Believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in Him, not perish but have eternal life. Believe in Him and not perish and have eternal life. So here is the challenge. Here is the challenge that every one of us have. Do we really understand do we real, are we really getting it in our hearts? Because we still go back. As soon as we walk out of here, some of us are going to go back and revert right back to that works mindset. Some of us are going to go right back and to keep our picture of the burning house, our very simple, very elementary picture, we're going to be running through the house. We're going to ignore the man on the ladder and we're going to be running through the house trying to find a fire extinguisher, trying to find, go into the sink, trying to turn it on, get a bucket of water to put out our fire so that then we can walk out the front door and be golden. Is that, is that picture making sense? That's what works mindset does. The fire, if any of you have ever been in a fire, especially one that's gotten out of control like that, you're not going to put it out with just a simple fire extinguisher. Your fire extinguisher will run out first. You're not going to put it out with a bucket of water. You've got to get out and, let, and the fire is going to do its damage. Now, if teams of firemen with a fire hydrant and hoses 
can put it out, sure. But you, in of yourself, in the house with a household fire extinguisher and a small bucket of water are not going to be able to put that fire out. And that's the equivalent picture of us trying to save ourselves by works. Number one, we can't. Number two, we can't. And number three, we really can't. We can't save ourselves by our works. So the challenge is this. Going out of here and staying in that understanding of grace. Going out of here and staying and maintaining an understanding that God has understood that we are sinful. He has understood that we have fallen short of the glory of God. He perfectly well understands how wicked and how evil that we are in of ourselves. He still chose to send His Son. He understood what the Israelites were doing when they sinned in the desert. He understood that they were poisoned, that they were dying. That's essentially what sin is. It's poison. He understood that. He understood that they were poisoned, they were dying. They couldn't heal themselves. I guarantee you Israelites were looking at the snake bites and they were trying to suck the venom out and spit it and suck the venom out and spit it. Everybody's seen those movies where somebody gets bit by a serpent and they think they're going to suck the venom out like that. Nonsense. They were all trying to do that. I guarantee it. They were trying to kill the serpents. More came. They were trying to suck the venom out. They got bit again. God understood they had no way out. He sent. He told Moses to make the bronze serpent, and that was their avenue of healing. Now, if they chose to look away or guard their eyes, that's their own fault. They condemned themselves. If we choose to ignore God's grace, it's our own fault. We condemn ourselves. And the reason that we choose to ignore God's grace is because we're pleased with our wickedness. We're pleased with our evil. We're pleased with our sin. We're happy with it. We want to stay there. So our challenge is twofold. I keep going back to this and I will say our challenge eventually. Our challenge is twofold. The first aspect is to not let ourselves fall back into a works mindset. You cannot earn your salvation. You can't. Number one, because of Adam's sin, original sin, you're, you're fallen humanity. Number two, because of the sin that you commit every single day. You can't. You do good works today, you're going to sin tomorrow. If you do good works for the rest of the week and you don't sin at all this week, you'll sin next week. You're going to sin. You're going to fall short. You cannot. Because it only takes one sin to send you to hell for all of eternity. If you don't understand God's measure of how He deals with sin, Eve bit a fruit and it condemned mankind for all of human history. She bit a fruit. I guarantee you, your sin is worse than eating a fruit. God hates sin, and He deals with it very, very abruptly, very, very harshly. Now, with that being said, Jesus, in Him, we are the righteousness of God. Don't go back to that works mindset. Those who live in the law shall die by the law. Don't do it. Stay in grace. I'm hammering this point because like I said, I want us to have that foundation. We can't go anywhere unless we have that solid foundation. And I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again in a different way. And the reason is, is because we have to have that rock solid foundation to build our faith upon. We have to understand the doctrine of grace. We have to understand John 3.16. We have to understand that God came into the world not for condemnation, but for grace to give us a way out, to save us, to free us from our own poison, which is sin. We have to get that into our heads. And I just want you to know for the next couple weeks in this series, I'll hammer it again and I'll hammer it again. We're going to have a foundation of grace. We're going to build a foundation. 
then we'll get into crazy outlandish stuff. You have to know me to, to understand that better. The second part of that challenge is repent of sin. It's an easy challenge. Repent of sin. God, Ask God. David cried out and said, Search me, God, and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Mm-hmm. We cry out, Search me, God. Find what's wicked in me and root it out. Yeah. Don't, don't follow the end of that. But whosoever... For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Don't fall prey to that because it's a slippery slope and it's a downward spiral. C.S. Lewis said that the devil tries to get a toehold and then he gets a foothold and then he gets a stranglehold and then it becomes a stronghold and then it becomes bondage that we can't escape. That's what's, that's what's at risk. That's what's at stake. Loving your sin, holding it fast, holding it dear, and letting it become a stronghold in your life. And then you get become guilty and you fall into this and you don't want to come to the light because you don't want your deeds to be exposed. And then you step away from grace completely. And it's a dangerous, dangerous place to live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask You right now, Lord, I I kept it very simple. I did the best that I could to make sure that it was plain, to make sure that it was easy to understand, to make sure that it could be received. Lord, I ask that it was just that, that it was received. Lord, I ask now for you to work on their behalf and to help them apply it. Help them apply grace to their life. Help them no longer search and serve out of a works mindset trying to earn your love or trying to earn your grace or trying to earn their salvation. But let them out of grace, knowing that you love them, knowing that you died for them, knowing that you've paved the way and provided for them, out of that let them live holy lives. Lord, help them to repent of any unrepentant sin. Help them to give their lives completely to you, to surrender, to make you Lord of their life. Help them, God, to grow and to be edified by your Spirit through the power of the resurrected Savior. Last thing, give everybody an opportunity. If anyone here needs prayer for anything, faith, you want to play something softly, I don't care what you play. Um, You can just play a couple notes back and forth. I'm not musical enough to know the difference. Uh, I just want to give everybody here a chance. I don't care what it is. I'm not asking for any specific call, but I always want people to have the opportunity to be prayed for, to be prayed with. If anyone needs prayer for anything, I'll just give you just a few moments to come forward and we'll pray for you. And I hope that through this series that we begin study on, that John 3.16 will make sense to us in a whole new way. hope that we will better understand the love and the gift of God, which is Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, as we take just a moment, Lord, if anyone needs anything, God, even if they don't come forward, you know their hearts, you know their minds. 
you know, their situation, their circumstances, their inward desires, their shortcomings, their failures, their struggles, even their successes and their victories. God, you know it all. Lord, I just ask right now in your power, Lord, just move in their lives, whatever it may be, finances, health, a struggle with sin and righteousness, self-condemnation, judgment, gossip, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, God. Lord, my desire for this body is to be a group of people who become mature in the faith and strong men and women of God, capable of leading and making others strong and capable and mature men and women of God, being a church that makes disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. Lord, that's my desire. So God, as we conclude this service, I just pray for your favor on them as they go their separate ways. Lord, I pray for your blessing and your provision. In Jesus' name.